0: Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. What happens when a 15-year-old Jehovah's Witness teen is pregnant with twins, and she refuses to accept a blood transfusion if it becomes necessary during a planned caesarean? What happens if her parents are also Jehovah's Witnesses and unlikely to consent? And does it matter if the teenager later changes her mind? I'm Sam Pillay and I'm here with Emma Harmon. Hi. We're both solicitors in the Barry Nelson Health Law Team and we were recently involved in a case where the Queensland Supreme Court was asked to consider these issues and more.
1: We're very lucky to be joined today by Matthew Hickey, a barrister at Level 27 Chambers in Brisbane. He was counsel representing the hospital in the case example that Sam just gave and regularly appears in medical cases and inquests. So welcome, Matthew, and thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: So, in this episode, we're looking at when the court orders are necessary to authorise medical treatment of a child, how the courts become involved, and what factors they consider in reaching a decision.
1: They're often really emotionally charged situations and they're very topical, with the recent release of the Children Act movie, where Emma Thompson stars as the UK High Court judge who's asked to approve life saving blood transfusion for a 17 year old who's dying from leukemia. And, of course, you can forget the Charlie Gard case from a, year, a few years ago. Um, perhaps to start with, Matthew, can you give a bit of a background and set out the legal framework for when decisions like this and about a child's treatment might come before a court in Australia?
2: Yeah, so this is a really interesting area of the law. It's not something that comes up with great regularity, Um It's called the parents patriae jurisdiction. It's a Latin phrase that means the parenthood of the fatherland. It's a bit um, non-PC these days, I suppose, but it's one of those old school sexist terms that persists in the law. (laughs) And what it means is that the court has this power to um, take care of people and property, the property of people, of those who can't take care for themselves. And it's an expression of the um, sovereign's power, the queen's power, to protect her subjects, effectively. Uh, And, of course, because the Queen's really busy and doesn't really have the um, opportunity to get around and take care of all of her subjects anymore, it's the court that does that uh, in the Queen's name. And it has the power to make orders that it considers are in the best interest, and we'll come back back to that, I'm sure, in due course, of the person about whom the orders are sought to be made. It's a really broad jurisdiction. Um, The court can pretty much do whatever it thinks is appropriate in all of the circumstances of the case, provided it's satisfied that those orders are in the best interests of the person that um, the orders are sought to be made about. It's a power that's a broad application. So, of course, we're talking here today about um, in the medical context and in respect of children, but it's one of those things that can be applied to adults, uh, people who don't have uh, capacity to make decisions for themselves, that kind of thing. But typically, one sees it in this context in a number of um, cases, uh Often they have a religious flavour, so it's where circumstances are such that a child um, may or may not have competence, and of course we'll come back to that again in a minute. Um, But typically it's a situation where parents won't consent to a particular course of treatment for some religious kind of reason. It's not exclusively that, but typically that's where one sees it. And the cases which really thrown up are um, infertility kind of contexts, um, orders for confinement, um, or orders for non-resuscitation and that um, kind of thing. It's a jurisdiction that the court is told by the cases to exercise sparingly. So it's not something that the court's quick to do. uh, And it takes a fair bit of persuading the court that that it should make these orders. And one can understand that in circumstances where the court really is interposing itself and um, often acting contrary to the express wishes um, of a child's parent. And what's really interesting about it is that it's a jurisdiction that can be invoked by anybody. It needn't necessarily be a hospital or a medical practitioner, although in this case, of course, that's typically who would invoke it. But any interested member of the public, frankly, could go along to the court and say, we've got concerns about an order that needs to be made in the best interest of a child, and would you please make it? Um, So it's a really interesting um, sort of area of the law and not one that comes up all that often.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, as, as you were saying, the, the court looks at the best interests um, of the of the person. Um, seems to be an area that's quite fraught with um, differences of opinion as to what <laughs> the best interests are in a particular um, are in a particular case. And um, I guess there's this subjective element, and, um, and you need to look at how much weight to p- place on different criteria. Looking at the cases, it seems like the court almost always agrees with the treating clinicians for you about what's best um, for a child in the medical context. Matthew, what do you think the Australian courts have been focusing on in deciding what's in a child's best interest?
2: Look, you're right about that. It would be a it would be a surprising situation if a court was quick to ignore the, um, the medical opinion of people who are qualified to express medical opinion about what's in the best interests of a child. And typically, in these sorts of cases, the court is concerned with, well, what's in the, the medical best interests of the child? And that's uh, an important consideration. But it's not the only one. The court is concerned to look at all manner of considerations which might inform this question of what's in the best interests. And it's a sort of a nebulous concept. And it's one of those things that lawyers frustrate other normal people by talking about, because it's difficult to pinpoint pinpoint precisely what does that mean. The best I can say is that it means all the kinds of factors which would lead a court to conclude at the end of all of the evidence that the order they're asked to make is or is not in the best interests of the child. But some of the things that the courts have um, considered are um, emotional well-being of a child, um, the nature of relationships between the child and their parents if the orders are made. So for instance, um, one sees sometimes situations where a child, for instance, might have um, very strong objection to a particular set of orders being made. And naturally enough, you'd accept that if um, if a court makes an order contrary to a child's wishes, there's some emotional damage that might attend that occurring. And indeed, a child then being subjected to treatment that they don't want to be subjected to might be traumatic for the, for the child. So it's that kind of thing that the court might consider. But there are also other um, considerations. So for instance, if um, performing a particular kind of treatment means that a child is going to need um, special care going forward, such that there'll be um, financial um, kinds of issues that might attend parents being able to take care of children, economic considerations. Those are things that a court will um, will take notice of. But ultimately, it's a question that needs to be weighed from case to case, and it requires careful consideration of the evidence that's put before the court as to whether or not what sort is in the best interest. And these types of
1: cases that we're talking about, they don't only look at... Um the parent's decision about whether to refuse or consent to treatment, as it may be. Um, But sometimes, in certain circumstances, they might also look at the child and their decision about, as you touched on, what the child wants and what's in the child's um, best interests. I'm originally from South Australia, where we have the helpful advantage of legislation which says that persons 16 and over are presumed to have capacity to consent to medical treatment. And there's some protection for doctors in New South Wales who give treatment to consenting children over 14. But otherwise, as you touched on again, Matthew, the common law applies Mm. and what's known as the test of Gillick competence. Um, That's used to look at whether a child's mature enough to consent to medical treatment in a nutshell. But can you explain more about how this principle Mm. or test
2: works? It's certainly much easier if you've got a statute that tells you when a child becomes (laughs) competent. That's a really um, easy approach. But for the rest of us who don't have that benefit, um, there's this case, it's a British case, it was decided by the House of Lords in 1986 um, called Gillick. And the situation there was um, Mrs Gillick didn't want Um, Her local health authority to give contraception to her underage daughters. So she went to the local health authority and said, will you please give me an undertaking that you will not, without my knowledge or consent, prescribe contraception to my daughters until they're 16. Um, Perhaps unsurprisingly, the health authority said, no, we're not really all that interested in giving you that kind of undertaking. Mrs Gillick um, took umbrage about that and went to court to argue that their refusal to give her what she wanted was unlawful. It infringed Upon her rights, her authority as a parent was the way she framed her argument. Um, she lost at first instance, won on appeal, and then ultimately was taken to the High Court, uh, the House of Lords uh, by the Health Authority. The House of Lords considered that argument, is it, is it a parent's right to be able to insist upon or refuse treatment for an underage child? And what they ultimately determined is that there's this um, sliding scale to be applied. That is to say there comes a point on the continuum of a child's development at which time they are able to, and increasingly able to, make decisions for themselves about whether or not they wish to accept or refuse um, treatment. That decision, Gillick, has been adopted in uh, Australia by the High Court in a decision called Marion's case. It's very well known, of course, by practitioners in this particular um, field. That was a case, um, as so often is thrown up in this area, um, where a young woman who had intellectual disabilities was... Um, her parents were concerned to administer um, treatment that would prevent her from having children. And the High Court in Australia said, yes, this, this test is the one to be applied. And again, it's one of these um, slightly nebulous tests. That is to say, there's no one-size-fits-all, um, unlike in a statutory context where you can say, if your child's 16, they can consent. What Gillick says is, as it applies in Australia, one must look at various factors to decide case to case whether a child in fact has competence to agree to or refuse um, a particular kind of treatment. And the sorts of factors one sees are things like how old is the child? What are the psychiatric and psychological background of the child's situation? What's their emotional status? To what extent does the child understand um, the nature of their underlying illness? To what extent do they understand the ramifications if that's left untreated? To what extent do they understand the treatment that's proposed? To what extent do they understand the short-term and long-term effects of that treatment? To what extent do they understand the um, broader impacts of the decision that they seek to make on other people, their parents' their friends, their family, that kind of thing. And so a court will look at the evidence about those sorts of things, including, I should say, um, medical opinion. So for instance, treating doctors will often be well-placed to, to form a view about whether or not they believe a child to be Gillick-competent. Um, and so they, of course, can give evidence about those things, but ultimately it's for the court to decide, am I satisfied that this particular child has the competence to refuse or accept treatment? It's important to understand, though, that in this context, even if a child is Gillick-competent, the court can still overrule their, um, their decisions.
1: Excellent. Yes. Yeah, so if a child is assessed as gillick competent, the court can still override that. Mm. Um, and similar issues came up in the Children's Act, the movie I was talking about earlier. And spoiler alert, tune out now for 10 <laughs> seconds if you don't want to know what happens. Um, but in that case, the 17-year-old was assessed by the court as gillick competent and mature enough to make their own um, decision about the treatment. But nonetheless, the court overrode the child's wishes and ordered the transfusion, and ultimately he survived into adulthood. Um, That's a fictional case, but it's quite similar factually to other cases that come before the courts here in Australia. One that I thought it was quite similar to was a 2004 case from Western Australia where the Minister for Health, asked the court to authorise a blood transfusion to a 15-year-old um, Jehovah's Witness again against the child's wishes. And the child there was assessed by the court as Gillick-competent and needed the transfusion as a result of his chemotherapy. But in that case, unlike the movie, um, the court looked at the Western Australian legislation, um, the Human Tissue and Transplant Act, which actually allowed a doctor to give a blood transfusion without consent of the child, if the child was likely to die without it. Um, The hospital, unsurprisingly, wanted some clarification on the meaning of the phrase likely to die um, because it was administering the transfusion there as a preventative measure, not necessarily as an immediate life-saving measure. Um, What happened was the court ultimately said, yes, this phrase covers the situation at hand, But, Sam, that same interaction between the parents' patriae jurisdiction um, and legislation concerning blood transfusions was considered in the Queensland case example we were involved in.
0: That's right, Emma, and this is something the hospitals are quite keen to have a bit clearer guidance on. Each state's got a slightly different situation, and looking at the Queensland legislation and the Victoria legislation, which are um, in effect and on their face um, the same, there's still some subtle differences in wording which can have um, impacts depending on the particular situation. In Queensland, the the legislation sets out a process for clinicians um, allowing them to give blood transfusion to a child where consent has been refused by, um, and they're quoting from the section exactly, a parent of the child or a person having authority to consent to the administration of the transfusion. So clearly it overrides a parent's refusal when the circumstances are met, it's um, a life-saving type situation. But it's not clear whether where you've got a, a child who has been assessed as Gillick competent, the provision also applies to override the child's own refusal of treatment. So it comes down to the question of Does the, do the words a person having authority to consent include the child themselves or do these words mean a third-party guardian of the child? So in the case that we're involved in, um, we were hoping to get some guidance from the court on this issue to avoid basically hospitals having to come back before the court each case by case to sort of get get orders to clarify it. Um, the court found that it wasn't necessary to decide this particular question in this case because the court found that 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 the parents patriae jurisdiction was broad enough to allow it to make orders in the best interest of the child that was sought by the hospital to deal with the, the situation so unfortunately we don't have a lot of clarity still
1: in Queensland. So in addition to these type of legislative interpretation issues that can arise um, in these cases, there can also be real ethical issues um, which are easy to imagine. For example, how far should the courts reach spread outside of the home? Um, What about parental responsibility and parental choice? And as Matthew touched on earlier, the cases can also really stress or impact on the relationship between the doctor and patient. Um, and also between the child and parent, not only at the time of the treatment, but also looking forward. For example, if you were a child who survived after receiving court-ordered life-saving treatment, it could easily strain the relationship or impact the relationship with your parents as you grow up, knowing that your parents had refused this treatment. Um, Matthew, some of these types of issues arose in a case that you were recently involved in in Queensland, the baby K case. Um, what was the situation there?
2: Yeah, that was a really uh, interesting case. And I, I must say, for me, probably in some respects, the most personally challenging case I've been involved in in my time at the bar, um, because it was a case that concerned all of the things we've discussed. That is, um, was the particular procedure um, advocated for there in the child's best interests? And the reason it was difficult for me was because it throws up this question of, well, who are we to say what best interests actually are? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the facts of that case were really interesting. It concerned uh, a a baby um, whose parents um, came from a developing nation. And the baby had um, something called refractive epilepsy, refractory epilepsy, I think, from memory. Um, The upshot of it was that this poor young fellow had numerous seizures a day, something in the order of up to 80 from time to time. So he was really deeply Mm -hmm. unwell. Uh, and so it was obvious that he couldn't um, have any kind of typical development unless the epilepsy was addressed. And because it was because he couldn't learn to crawl and he couldn't walk, he couldn't speak, all of these kinds of things. And so his quality of life would be very poor if the epilepsy um, wasn't addressed. The issue, though, was, um, as I've said, his parents were from a developing nation and had very firm and genuinely held beliefs that um, this particular condition should be treated by traditional and customary medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And their evidence was they had, in fact, seen that occur in their home country. And so they were really concerned to ensure that he wasn't treated in the way that the doctors wished to treat him. And I should say, the way the doctors wished to treat the condition, which is typical, it seems, around the world for this particular presenting condition, was by literally slicing this baby's brain in half. It would have the effect of um, preventing... So I should say, um, his condition was such that there was one side of his brain that was defective and one side of his brain that was perfectly functioning. And the problem was the defective side of the brain kept sending confused messages uh, and it was um, the concern of the neurologists, the treating neurologists, that it would um, damage ultimately the good side of the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, of course, it's a pretty significant thing to do to um, perform a hemispherectomy um, to slice the brain in half. Uh, And the evidence of the doctors was obviously, look, we can't guarantee that he will have normal development even if we do this procedure but we can give him the best chance possible of having some kind of typical development if we do it. And if we don't, um, his prognosis is very poor. Um, The hospital in that case, to their absolute credit, were really incredibly accommodating of the parents um, in in that they they attempted, within the bounds of the hospital, to uh, try, side by side with regular medicine, all sorts of alternative therapies. Um, They tried experimental cannabis oil. They tried um, smoking ceremonies. They did all manner of anointing with oil. They brought a a shaman from the particular place where these people were from to administer um, cultural remedies. They they really went to extraordinary lengths to try to accommodate the the parents' wishes, which I think is to their absolute credit and demonstrates the sensitivity with which I think, it's a personal view, um, these cases need to be uh, approached. And the reason for that was not just to pay lip service to these people, but to demonstrate that their um, concerns were legitimate. But most importantly, I suppose, to try to help persuade these parents, look, um, we've tried all of these things and they don't work. Now will you let us please do the thing, do the procedure for which we advocate? And that's an important practical step because if, if treating practitioners can achieve that, it means none of us have to go to court. No. Um, and of course one doesn't like to do oneself out of a job, but ideally <laughs> n- nobody would ever have to go to court. Uh, if you can avoid that at all possible, it's it's the desirable outcome. But it did leave me with a sense of um, having been the person who argued the case when it was over, um, how can I be sure as a as a matter of philosophy that just because this is in the medical best interests of this child, this is ultimately the 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 decision, which is in the child's best interest, and I must say, um, we had Justice Atkinson hear that case, who who was an excellent um, judge to hear it. She dealt with it um, with extreme sensitivity, and I could apprehend that um, Her Honour was also um, troubled and challenged by the question of the gravity of that decision in a way that one sees in that um, in that movie. I should say I've not seen the movie, but I've read the book. Um, but one sees the way a judge has to grapple with those issues, and I suppose um, that's a good point to point out, if one comes to the court with this kind of thing, it's necessary to help the court by giving it all of the information it needs to properly weigh and decide this kind of um, this kind of case.
0: Mm. So if I'm in a clinical setting in Australia and faced with a child and or their parents refusing treatment, which I think is their treating practitioner is medically necessary, What do I do as a matter of practice and how does
2: the matter get before the court? It's a a really good question. As I said, ideally, you would avoid going to court. So your your first step, I suppose, in my view, is to try to persuade the parents and the child um, why this is something that needs to happen. But let's assume you can't do that. Um, You want to invoke the court's jurisdiction. Naturally, the rules will vary a bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction around Australia. And I'm speaking from the Queensland experience, but in, in your state, they'll be similar, I'm sure. Um, One comes before the court with an application uh, and says, we wish to invoke the parents' patria jurisdiction. What we want the court to do is to make a declaration that the kind of treatment we want to administer is in the child's best interests and make orders which facilitate that to happen. And typically they're framed in a way that says, insert name of hospital here, and it's employed staff and licensed practitioners or what have you are entitled to do all things necessary of an incidental to this particular procedure and anything else that might be thought necessary in their judgment for the treatment of, insert name of child here. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. Then of course, um, the application needs to be supported by evidence and the evidence is typically um, of the treating practitioner. So the treating practitioner will give an affidavit that explains this is the condition that um, this child is afflicted with. These are the things that are likely to happen if the, if the affliction isn't treated. Um, this is the prognosis if we don't do the thing that we pr- propose to do. And then they'll give some evidence about the, the proposed course of treatment. And ideally, one would explain um, in great detail what that treatment entails. What are the risks of it? What are the benefits of it? Um, if it's experimental, why is it experimental? If it's not experimental, where has it been used before? What are the survival rates? In the case of baby K, for instance... There were two volumes of historical literature about um, hemispherectomy, that particular procedure, um, and the court was taken through painstaking detail every academic paper right back to the early 30s, um, which demonstrated the evolution of that particular procedure. And that's really important because if you're asking somebody to make an order that insists a particular thing happens, the least you can do is explain to them why it's necessary and what what it actually entails. So that's important. Um, Of course, you would also give evidence about um, what leads you to needing to come to court. So you'd give some evidence about what engagement you've had with the child, with their parents. Um, Frequently, social workers will be involved in a a hospital context with this kind of thing. So you might give some evidence from social workers about um, discussions they've had with the family, attempts they've had to persuade. If you've done lots of those steps that I've mentioned earlier, for instance, in the baby K case, all of that um, alternative stuff, you might include evidence about that to persuade the court, look, we've really tried here to to exhaust other options. Mm. You might um, also give some evidence about alternative therapies that you've tried. So if you've tried um, lots of other lesser remedies and they haven't worked, then you give some evidence about those sorts of things. And then ultimately, um, the practitioner would, of course, give some evidence about them holding the opinion medically that this is in the child's best interests medically. Some other things to think about too though, are what other um, alternative practitioners might need to be engaged. So if it's likely that um, treating a child or forcefully treating a child is going to throw up psychological issues or psychiatric issues or indeed social work kinds of issues, Mm -hmm. it's helpful to be able to put on some evidence that demonstrates here's a a treatment plan that we propose to put in place once your honour makes these orders um, by which you can be satisfied that all told, this is in the child's best interests. So there's quite a lot of um, evidence to be gathered and it's something that, if um, if it needs to happen, really requires the input of your um, legal advisers sooner rather than later. Um, and the other thing to be said, of course, is that these um, applications can arise usually in a state of urgency. Um, it needs to happen quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's why um, it's probably best to have a, a contingency plan for this kind of thing in place before the, the need for it ever arises, because it's much easier if you've got Um, an existing suite of processes and documentation um, that you know you can roll out. But that said, it's not only in situations of urgency. For instance, um, the case that we were involved in was one where we were seeking anticipatory orders. That is to say, the particular um, risk that was being addressed by the 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 treatment, in that case it was a a transfusion, hadn't yet arisen, and it may not have arisen. What we were doing was going to the court to say, we apprehend that this particular risk might arise, and if it does, we want to be authorised to do something. Mm. Um, But that's a different case from where, um, for instance, in the case of baby K, there was an immediate and urgent need to act immediately. The risk had already presented itself. And so the kind of evidence that one might gather in support of an application will Differ depending upon whether the application is one which is urgent or anticipatory.
0: Or you have more time. Yeah, I can imagine this um, in a practical sense. It's a lot easier to gather information when you've got a several months lead in um, the pregnancy and a bit of warning. <laughs> we all know the babies are coming out. Indeed. Um, compared to something that just, just comes up and catches people on the back foot.
2: Absolutely. Um, but
0: either way, it, it's. Um, there's a, there's a lot involved um, in terms of clinician time mm. um, and, I guess, strains on the hospital resources and and um, potentially for the people involved, it's a stressful process as well, having to yes. um, give evidence to the court.
2: Yeah, look, I think I think that's right. It's it um, it's something that's not to be underestimated. It's not as though the doctors can um, simply say, this is what we think needs to happen and then hand it over to the lawyers and expect the lawyers will do everything. It is a process, if, if invoked, which means doctors... Probably will need to come to court. That's obviously disruptive to practice, uh, and m- my usual experience is that doctors loathe coming to court, and I can understand why. Um, but it is something that, that treating teams need to be aware of. If you're going to be engaged in this process, it will disrupt other things that are going on within the clinical context, which will need to be attended to. Mm,
0: absolutely. So with this type of application, I mean, who are the parties to the application typically and um, do they, can they include um, an unborn child? We're talking about anticipatory orders. You know mm. a child's um, going to need treatment as soon as they are born, mm. um, potentially life-saving. Can the court make orders um, in relation to that child and how's the um, privacy of, of people's health information protected in these types of matters?
2: Yeah, those are good questions. Um, so to deal with the first part, Parties are typically a function of the local court rules. So the, the usual thing is that the court rules will say, the parties to a proceeding need to be all of those who are necessary in order for the court to determine the question that comes before it. Uh, again, that's a sort of a nebulous lawyer's concept. But typically in these kinds of applications, um, one sees the, the hospital um, that's bringing the application. And in my experience, they're typically brought by um, public hospitals, um, but not always. Uh, they are usually the moving party, the applicant. The respondents to the application are typically the parents, sometimes the child, depending upon the child's age and whether or not we have a view about whether the child has Gillick competence or not. Often it's a function of what the relationship is between the parents and the child. So if the par- if the child, for instance, is consenting to the treatment but the parents are adamant they, the treatment can't be administered, um, there might be a, a, a question of who's joined. And there are some sort of... Um, tricky nitty-gritty around the administration of which parties are joined, which require really careful consideration on a case-by-case basis. but sometimes the child might be joined. In the case, as you say, of unborn children, um, yes. The short answer is the court can make orders uh, in respect of unborn children. There, um, That was kind of an issue in the in the case that we did together. There's certainly some um, decisions elsewhere in Australia. In New South Wales, there's one where um, decisions had been made, orders had been made in respect of unborn children, which is sort of quite interesting, really, when you think mm, um, uh, philosophically about that question of when does a person become a person subject to, to orders. But the answer in this context is absolutely the court can make those orders. Um, In terms of privacy, as you'd appreciate, this is an area where um, practitioners are very concerned to ensure that they maintain the privacy of their patients, and the courts are um, willing to assist in that process. The starting point, of course, when one goes to court is that court proceedings are conducted in public, and we've seen in the media recently lots of discussion where there have been suppression orders made about things, and the media, unsurprisingly, thinks that's quite controversial, and you can understand why. that's because most court proceedings are seen to be um, resolution of matters of public importance, um, that even if there's a fight between private individuals, the resolution of it has some public effect because jurisprudence, of course, um, has consequences for all of the other litigants. Mm. Interestingly, the cases talk about this particular um, area, that is the application of the parents patriae jurisdiction, as not really being a resolution of a public interest, but in in truth, being the resolution of a question as between the sovereign, the Crown, and the person in respect of whom the orders are made. That is to say, the, the cases talk about it being a, the resolution of a private matter, yeah. and that being a basis for um, one not revealing the names of the children in particular who are um, involved. And so typically, in addition to the substantive orders you seek, that is the orders that permit you to do the thing that you want to do, you'll also seek some orders that say the name of the, the child is not to be published, the name of the child's parents is not to be published. Um, sometimes one will see even orders um, not permitting the publication of the, um, the treating hospital, uh, the treating doctors, and those are usually because um, to do so would in some way um, be apt to identify the child. Mm-hmm. Um, typically the court isn't too concerned about maintaining the privacy of the hospital or the treating practitioners, they're more concerned about um, maintaining the privacy of the child. And in a practical sense, It's really important to get on the front foot with these kinds of things if you're contemplating bringing an application because um, there, there are examples that I'm familiar with where the cat has got out of the bag, so to speak, and the media has found out by searching the registry, the court's registry, that a particular case is being brought. And once the genie's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in again. And in the case that I'm thinking of, family who were attending the the court for the purpose of the application were harassed by the media. They were photographed. The media published stories about it. Now, all of that, obviously, is not ideal. One would prefer that to be avoided. And it can be avoided um, by taking preventative steps on the way into the preparation of the application to ensure that those things are kept confidential. And again, that's another reason why it's important to engage your legal advisors sooner rather than later to ensure that those sorts of things don't get out.
0: Yep. And
1: inadvertently, people think things are published.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: I guess that's why there's lots of cases that we refer to as like the baby K case or the... Yeah. AS case because they anonymise the names, they anonymize the names mm. with good reason but still give a lot of the reasons to the public so they can understand the pr- process that the court's going, gone through to make a decision. Um, that's one type of example where um, it's good to get legal advisors in early, um, they can help you prepare all of the evidence and they work, can work very closely with the treating team but there have been instances where, and I'm thinking of the case of baby Muhammad in New South Wales where the parents um, just rang up the duty judge and the duty judge came down and heard the application in the hospital. I think it was the same day, a matter of hours between the parents calling up and the um, judge actually coming down to the hospital. And my understanding was all of that happened without lawyers' involvement. So that's just goes to show... And the judge is really interested in that case and hearing from the parents, the treating paediatrician and then two other intensivists from the hospital about this um, baby's case and whether he should be taken off assisted ventilation. Um, so it just goes to show how pragmatic the court can be, on the other hand, if it needs to be, and how these type of matters can progress very differently depending on the urgency, depending on who's asking to invoke the court's jurisdiction and
2: depending on the child's condition as well. Yeah, the court treats, in my experience, courts uh, treats these kinds of um, applications in a special kind of way. Uh, They understand uh, the seriousness of it. They understand how deeply it affects people's lives. They understand the the dilemma that it presents treating practitioners. But similarly, they understand uh, how deeply confronting it is for parents in particular to have their parental rights um, cast to one side. And and certainly... um, as a parent myself, I can understand that. The idea that, that a court could step in and sweep to one side my own preferences in respect to my children is a is a very confronting notion. Uh, and so because of that, I think, um, in my experience, at least here in Queensland, the court is very careful to listen carefully to the concerns of parents, the way they're expressed, to understand them and to deal with them um, with respect and dignity, um, particularly when there's a religious uh, Reason that gives rise to the to the um, opposition, Um, and so and again for the reasons I've explained in respect of suppression orders, because this isn't really a a public dispute but rather a private one, there is a capacity I suppose for the court to do the kind of thing you've described, go to the bedside, undertake um, inquisition if you like, that's not quite the right word I mean, but but to to undertake investigation in a way that a court ordinarily perhaps wouldn't, um, before the court makes that order.
0: The structure and the same sort of rules around evidence that you'd normally um, have if it was in a court. Lots of interesting issues involved. Um, Looking forward, how do you think this area of law might change?
2: Look, it is an interesting area and um, I suppose it's informed by... social expectations and social norms. Um, one of the things that I've been um, involved in a little bit over the last few years, and although it's it's only tangentially related to this, it is related nevertheless, and that's in uh, the family court where orders are made in respect of children with gender dysphoria, it still remains the case that one needs to approach the court to get permission to um, to administer irreversible um, uh, hormone treatment to transitioning children. And that's one of those areas where I think now there's a great deal more um, public consciousness and understanding and support of transgender tr- children and the need perhaps for them to be um, able to access that kind of treatment without necessarily needing to invoke the the authority of the court. But if one turns uh, one's mind back to poor old Mrs Gillick in 1986, it, it almost seems um, quaint now that a mother would be concerned about her child being administered contraception if she chose to be administered contraception um, but it's not that long ago and so I suppose if one looks forward um, what, how different might the world be in 30 years time where the court says that there are certain things which um, a child can refuse or consent, which we p- can't possibly presently imagine. Mm-hmm. And given the nebulousness of this idea of what's in the child's best interests, that of course will be informed by social norms, by uh, the way people interact with each other, what, what a normal family is thought to look like, all of those kinds of things. So um, although this is a very ancient jurisdiction, um, it's one which is actually in a funny kind of way at the cutting edge of social progress and development. It's a really interesting area.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning into The Checkup. We have links to the cases we've referred to in our episode notes, and we welcome any feedback you have or health law topics you would like to know more about. Just head to bnlaw.com.au to get in touch. And please let us know if you would like to be involved in the checkup. Chat soon!